Hello and welcome to the Better Does Worse edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm joined by Emily Peck of Fundrise. Hello, hello. By Stacey Marie Ishmael of Bloomberg. Hello. And in this here Shana Roth produced show, we are going to talk about Better, which is actually a mortgage company, and their atrocious way of laying people off. We're going to have a whole conversation about is there a good way of laying people off and firings and all of that kind of thing. In a context, we have to say, of firings and layoffs being basically less common and virtually non-existent these days. We are going to talk about 15-minute grocery delivery. It's a thing now. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? We will work that one out. We are going to talk about voting and whether you need to be a citizen to be able to do it. We have a Slate Plus about inflation. It's all coming up on Slate Money. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. So let's start by talking about better.com, the place that does everything better, worse. (laughs) Stacey, what is better.com and what did they do worse? Well, I could start with what they did worse, which is the reason that any of us are talking about better.com is because their CEO, a, a person named Vishal Garg, laid off 900 employees by zoom in you know being laid off by zoom i guess it's 2021 but the way that he did it was remarkable and it really has once again triggered a conversation including from his own you know board around do we have to treat employees like the worst of humanity and not at all respect what it is that they are going through and his board seems to have basically fired him or like suspended well, he's, he's him or something leave. 
<laughs> He's on leave. Yeah, okay. And you know, and it's is, is this is this a bit like when those people like when those TV hosts take a long scheduled holiday that they hadn't told anyone about? <laughs> what possible TV host could we be thinking of? Um, so this, you know, like Better.com is like a mortgage company, right? They're not. <laughs> they're not saving the world. They're they're providing mortgage financing, and the idea that the way you can talk to employees is is like this is something that I'm I'm always baffled by. Like, what is it about becoming a CEO that turns you into the type of person that thinks everybody else is not a is not a human being? The thing which really struck me about the clip was when he basically says. This is going to hurt me more than it hurts Crying you. Emoji. And then he says, you are all terminated effective immediately. Which is never a good way to fire someone. Well, Shana can play the clip. He says, this is the second time in my career that I am doing this. I do not want to do this. The last time I did it, I cried. I cried. This time, <laughs> I hope to be stronger. So in other words, let's talk about my feelings as I lay, as, as I fire 900 of you. Um... I come to you with not great news. Um, the market has changed, as you know, and uh, we have to move with it in order to survive so that hopefully we can continue to thrive and deliver on a mission. This isn't news that you're going to want to hear, uh, but ultimately it was my decision and I wanted you to hear from me. It's been a really, really challenging decision to make. I've, this is the second time in my career I'm doing this, and I do not, do not want to do this. The last time I did it, I cried. Um, this time I hope to be stronger. But we are laying off about 15% of the company. My friend Mark Gongloff at Bloomberg wrote it was very much like Gavin Belson um, laying off a bunch Valley. of employees, fictionally, on S Silicon Valley, saying it's it's so hard to say goodbye. Everyone thinks Gavin Belson is stepping down, but no, he's just firing an entire division. It's very similar kind of energy. It's like for some CEOs, they're only thinking in terms of themselves and not in terms of they're not having empathy for their employees. And Zoom firing. You know who and else did that? I feel like when people say Zoom firing, there's a sense um, that the Zoom is like a back and forth. Like we experience Zooms, like we're sort of experiencing our video chat right now. But it's not. It's just a broadcast usually um, where someone is just broadcasting via video like you're all fired. There's no opportunity for employees to sort of to, to talk back, to ask questions, to to process in any way. It's It's... It's quite inhumane. Um, and even in before Zoom, companies have have used technology to do this in other bad ways. Like someone posted, Radio Shack sent an email, a mass email laying off people, <laughs> I think in the 90s, the same kind of thing. Like you have no, um, you ha you're like effectively muted and silenced while you're being fired, which is like not the best way to do it. Yeah. I have been fired more than once, I have to say, but... Um in every time, and definitely I'm not going to say that any of them were particularly pleasant, but and some were worse than others, but at least it was a conversation with some kind of boss person who would be like, Felix got fired. And I'm like, oh dear. And then we would have, we would conversate for as long as like seemed sensible. And then the conversation would end. And at least 
at least it was one-on-one, right? Like this kind of one-to-many mass firing is bad, and it was compounded in this particular case by the CEO then coming out and basically telling everyone who wasn't fired that the people who were, were fired pull- were, were, pulling their were like, were terrible. They were doing like, what was he saying? Like two hours work and charging 40 hours a week for, to do it or whatever. He was, he really started bad mouthing them. And um, yeah, that's a bad look. I mean, as, as a person who has managed people for a long time and who has been one of the bosses that had to call people into rooms and be like, Hey, this is, this is what's going on. It sucks, but it is never, ever, ever worse for the person doing the firing than it is for the person on the other side. Like, it's just not true. Like, I don't care how uncomfortable it might feel. I don't care that you might feel guilty or whatever those things are. You still have a job. And, you know, I think that whenever someone is like, oh, it's so much harder for me than it is for you, I'm like, you have no understanding of what it means to be precariously employed. And if that is something that you truly believe. Yeah, I mean, I remember one one time, one of the times that I was fired, I was um, in, uh, I was in the United States on an H visa, which is an employer specific work visa, and I was like, you do realize that if you fire me, that basically immediately puts me out of status, and I become you know an in illegal, the country illegally, per, you know, re- resident. Yes, <laughs> I'm living. I'm I'm an illegal person suddenly, and they're like, um, they're like, well. While we have been in this room talking, one of our colleagues has literally unplugged your computer. You have ten minutes to leave the to vacate oh the God. premises. I was like, "Wow, what are the so okay?" So I mean, sometimes companies do have to let people go; they can't afford you anymore. Whatever. What is the right way to do it, Stacy? Um, I think from the perspective of anybody who's ever been laid off, there's, there's no right way for them to be, to be laid off. They would very much appreciate continuing to have their job. Um, but I think one of, there are lots of things that make it worse, right? Like, uh, group firings, that's awful (laughs) where you're like, if you were in this room, you're okay. If you're in this other room, you're not okay. Um, firing by calendar invites. If you, if you get invited to a certain meeting, you're fine. If you didn't, you're doomed. Having, you know, the passwords to things be like a, a pleasing, uplifting note before you go into the Zoom where you or you're going to be fired. Not great. Um, and also any indication whatsoever to people who remain employed at the company that your performance was somehow in question. That's that's one of the most inappropriate things that you can do as a manager in any sort of position where you are having to lay people off. It's like, it doesn't matter if it's true, right? It doesn't matter if the person you're firing is because you found out they're like currently a serial killer. It's like you, the, 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 the best practice, both professionally from a risk mitigation perspective, but also just personally as a human is to say, you know, we're not going to comment on why this happened. You know, we here, here's the realities that we're facing as a company, but we're not going to make out any disparate remarks, disparaging or otherwise about the people that we're letting go. And I do think to your point, Felix, one of the one of the things I've increasingly heard with people who are doing mass layoffs is, well, there's no way for us to talk to anyone to everyone individually. I'm like, well, that's a decision, right? It's like there, there's always a way 
to do that. It might require time. It might be expensive. It might not be totally convenient. But that's that's a choice. And so I think it's more a question of what are you choosing to prioritize in the way that you are treating people as they are exiting your company, as opposed to acting as if there are no other options. Better still had thousands of employees, right? And lots of, and a whole management org chart. Like it didn't need to come directly from the CEO in a video. You know, he could have just told all of the managers who were in charge of hired employees to say, you know, to let them go gently or whatever. Yeah, I, I asked on Twitter this morning because I was sort of curious, like, has anyone ever been laid off in a way that they were like, you know what, that was fair, that that was fine. And the common themes from people who said their layoff was, you know, tough but fair was, first, it was a personal firing. It wasn't a mass one where they had like a back and forth. And second, money. Mm, yeah. <laughs> is this is there severance? Are, exactly. you, are you being cut off completely or is the severance like fairly decent and the health benefits, are they there too? And, and Better.com actually, if they had done a, a better job, um, firing everyone, like if you listen to the whole call, he gave, I think it was like a month severance and three months health insurance, which is like fine. Um, but yeah, it's money and keeping it, keeping it personal and not making it about yourself. Like, Never make it about yourself. I'm so sorry. I feel so easy. bad. <laughs> if there was anything else that I could do. No, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not about you. It is about the person on the other end. One other thing which I would say is, like, if you possibly have any choice in the matter, don't be firing people en masse in, like, mid-December. It is kind of the worst time to do it. Yes. Yes. Wait till January. What's so hard about that? It's just a couple more weeks, right? Uh, well, I'm, I'm sure there are... How many times has Felix been fired? I'm now, like, wondering. <laughs> it's been a lot. I, yeah, I've lost, I've lost count, but... It... <laughs> I was I was trying I was trying to think about that earlier. Actually, I was like, "Well, there was there was that time that I was meant to get a job." You know, um, the actual firings I think were probably just two. Um, how about you, Emily? I've been laid off twice, and neither was that bad. the The first one, we were all in a room together, but I was at a magazine that folded. So it was like our editor in chief gave us the news all together and it felt, it felt right. You know, it would have been weird. Because the EIC was losing like her job as well. Yeah, exactly. She, we were all losing. It was like her magazine was like her baby. So it felt, I don't know, it felt fine and empathetic. And they let us hang around the office for a weirdly long time and use the company fax machine because it was that time oh wait you know what i forgot i forgot about the third one no there was a third time i got fired from rubini global economics and then they they were like you're fired and would you like to come to the christmas party <laughs> uh what did, did you, you go, go to party? and then weirdly i did i had i didn't know what that <laughs> i was like hi everyone wow. hi everyone when, when, when are we seeing you again <laughs> Wow. That's um, oh, and and I sometimes I also wonder if layoffs, if layoffs are undertaken too hastily. Like we saw Airbnb at the beginning of the pandemic did a huge layoff, and then like a few months later, Airbnb was fine, went public, and made a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of money. And you kind of wonder, was that move a little hasty? Oh, I mean, with hindsight, well, there were two different things going on there. One was that like 
we all remember what it was like in March, April 2020. Like the entire planet was imploding from underneath our feet. Um, everything came to a halt. All travel came to a halt. Um, it was entirely rational for Airbnb to think, oh shit, like we are losing an insane amount of money every minute and we need to rationalize and get back onto a sustainable footing. Now, in you know, if they had had the foresight to be able to say, well, we can see that this pandemic is actually going to be great for us, then that would have been amazing foresight. But it's they they didn't, you know, not not being able to see the future is is a forgivable sin. Um, but the other thing that happens, and like I, you know, I read um, some of like Reed Hastings' latest book about when he fired a bunch of people at Netflix. I've definitely heard the Airbnb talk guys talk about this. I've even heard like the WeWork people talk about this, which is that when you are running a fast growing company, you wind up often hiring a bunch of people to do a bunch of things or you buy a bunch of companies that aren't very core and you wind up like just not really being in control of what's going on and the net and when there is a period of layoffs it does kind of focus the company and i honestly do believe in a kind of fucked up capitalist way that airbnb is a better company now and a more valuable company now for having had those layoffs. That is certainly the argument of CFOs and, CF and CEOs and CEOs and other people whose job it is to talk about efficiency in knowledgeable ways. Um, one of the interesting things about layoffs, and this is particularly from a media context, is when they come with the opportunity to opt in, right? So it's like, we're going to offer a severance package we're going, or we're going to offer a number of buyouts, or you know, we're essentially going to like let people put their hands up to be selected. And you you introduce this fascinating asymmetry, where the people who opt into those packages are often ones who know that because of tenure or negotiation or whatever things, like they're going to exit with a pretty sizable guaranteed amount of money. Um, and, you know, and, and and the company is like, okay, great. We no longer have X number of very large liabilities in the form of salaries or, or 401ks or pensions or, or whatever those things might be. But you often end up in a, in a situation where the associated exit of institutional knowledge is very large because you might be losing people who have been in very senior positions or have been around for a long time and are like good repositories of information. Um, and those, there's, I always think to your point, Emily, about hastiness, that it's useful to look at metrics beyond like the pure amount of money being saved and to think about what is effectively like the replacement cost, not just in terms of the jobs, but like the expertise. And, you know, some people like to talk about the culture um, when you have these kinds of upheavals. And it's certainly true that buyouts are basically a way of getting the most hireable people, of paying the most hireable people to leave. Like the, the more certain you are that you can find another job very easily, the more liable you are to take the buyout and so you wind up basically retaining the least employable people which is never a smart tactic i'd never thought about that before i always thought buyouts got rid of like the people that were very close to retirement and so you're getting rid of like the older workers but of course of course felix is right i think it's, it's absolutely correct what often happens is it's the people who know that they still have 
um, good hireability in the markets and they, you know, they do the math of I'm going to get a guaranteed three months, which means coasting time. I can take time off between jobs. I can go on gardening leave or whatever. And then they're entering into the marketplace from a very comfortable position. I, I do know one person in media and, you know, one of the reasons we've all been fired so much is because we work in media. Um, but I do know one person in media who talked to me once. He was a like successful executive. And he told me that one of the reasons he kept on getting hired for bigger and bigger, more important jobs was just because like he was good at the firing thing. He Oof, could so take grim. those decisions and implement them. And like, no one wants to do that job. And if you're the one person who's willing to do that job, then everyone will hire you to do that job. That's dark. Well, you know, it's funny because it immediately make me think of people who get hired and into media organizations and like two seconds later, there's a bunch of reorgs and layoffs and restructurings. Um, because it does take a George Clooney and up in the air character of bloodlessness sometimes to be able to, you know, just sort of in a, in a very ruthlessly operational way, separate the reality of what's going to happen to people on the other end from whatever the business imperative is. <laughs> and I have to say the, 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 the most heartening thing I think I saw, like I, it, which did rekindle a little bit of my faith in humanity was when there were layoffs at Univision mm, and in Miami and there were there were a bunch of people we'd hired um a bunch of specifically some Mexican but mostly Colombian people that we'd hired who were amazing investigative journalists and were on the layoff list and had not managed to get any kind of green card or or permanent residence in the United States and a bunch of Univision employees actually came out and put their hands up and said, listen, fire me instead. Like the U.S. citizens were like, fire me instead. I, I can find another job. If you fire this person, he's going to have to go back to Colombia and he could like wind up getting killed if that happened. Wow. That is very humanity restoring so. faith in, I have to say, <laughs> like, yes. So layoffs bad, but there are humane ways to do it. Layoffs hard. Not always bad, but always hard. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe and what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about DoorDash, because they started hiring people, which is something which they have been at pains to not do um, for most of their existence. They are notoriously one of the 
big gig economy workers where people just like sign into the app and get paid per hour or per gig. And um, DoorDash is moving into this very crowded field of 15-minute delivery where, and there's a bunch of companies with weird names like 1520 or Joker or GoPuff and I don't know. Like if you walk around Manhattan, all you see is ads for these companies. Um, and and they all offer the same thing, which is basically it's an app and you can order whatever you like and it comes to you in 15 minutes. Um, the economics of this we can debate. But what's interesting is that the way that DoorDash is doing it, and I think actually the way that most of the many of these other companies are doing it as well, is they've realized that the economics makes sense to actually get the delivery people on payroll as full-time employees. Um, they've opened up a dark store at, uh, well, a series of Felix, dark stores. Felix, what's, what's a most dark of these. store? So a dark store is this thing that has you they have existed in europe and and hong kong places like that for a while it's become they're becoming more common in the united states it's basically a storefront which is easily accessible to people on electric bicycles and in it is like lots and lots of shelves of groceries and other things that people want in 15 minutes or less and the only people who are allowed in that store are delivery workers human like normal human people who just want to go in and buy a apple or a pack of cigarettes or whatever like cannot do that you need the the only people who are in there are delivery workers going in collecting the package and delivering it so there's no actual payment going on in the dark store there's no cash registers there's no way for to, to take payment it's just a little local depot basically which can count as a mini hub from which to do that last mile delivery and i'm f very familiar with these dark stores because the new york headquarters of axios.com are at 152 west 25th street which has just opened up a DoorDash dark store and so we you know every time i go to the office we have people going in and out of this dark store i was like this is great there's a grocery store opening up in my building i'm like nope it's not it's not for me it's just for people ordering on an app um but yeah tell me stacy like is this going to be bad for the urban fabric there was a piece in bloomberg this week basically saying dark stores mean that the way that we all interact with each other on the street and go into the store and talk to the guy behind the counter and pet the bodega, bodega cat and all of best. that kind of stuff goes away and and like is this the death of the bodega cat or and and there's a lot of kind of concern trolling about like what does this mean for cities is that reasonable or is this just like another weird case of like too much money chasing silly ideas and it'll flash in the pan and go away. I think away. both of those things can be true at once because the economics of these things are interesting, <laughs> which is to say I'm not, I don't fully understand how they work, right? It's like they have these well-founded stockhouses, as you describe them, where there's got to be a fairly significant investment in the logistics of the inventory and in how quickly somebody who receives an order can go in and find the the milk and the apple and the you know whatever else it is. But I do think there is a there is I agree with strongly agree with the Bloomberg piece because I think that the more you render invisible how things work, 
the easier it is to have no understanding of the potentially exploitative ways in which you are being served. It's like you you are rendering invisible the people behind the thing, the process behind the thing, the reality of the thing, and always just optimizing for convenience and marketing. And I think that part of being an informed and aware consumer slash participants in capitalism is a little bit more of an understanding of like, if something is getting to you in 15 minutes, what does that mean actually? And in the way that we've talked a lot about factory workers and how hard it is for people who work at the major shippers to rest or take breaks or even have any time off or even communicate with a human in their management chain, it, you know, those the, the speed at which we have become used to receiving things is directly related to the dehumanization of various processes. And I do think that this is another example of that. And, and fast fashion is, of course, exhibit A mm-hmm. here. There's there's a huge human cost and um, cost to the planet of fast fashion that is basically invisible to anyone who walks into an H&M or a Zara. Right. And, you know, the idea, one of the the analogies in the piece that I, or the comparisons in the piece that I really appreciated is kind of the difference between 15-minute delivery and, uh, and what's called a 15-minute city. And a 15-minute city is the idea that you can walk out of your door and within 15 minutes you can find most, if not all, of the things that you need without having to rely on either public transit, transit or a car. And that's a that's a really different thing because it's like you have a sense of community, you have you have an understanding of your neighborhood, you're invested in the existence of the bodega cat or whatever else it might be. You have chance encounters, um, but when you are relying on 15 minute delivery, it makes a lot of assumptions about space and how to use it. It makes a lot of assumptions about who can afford to pay the premiums that these kinds of services tend to rely on after they've, you've burnt through the free trial period or whatever that thing is, and what the lives of the workers who provide those services should look like. One question I have is, like, how many places are even dense enough to be able to support 15-minute delivery services. Um, like, is this, again, like something that New York media types like to bellyache about because they live in New York, which is like the only city in America, like one of the only cities in America where, which has the requisite density for something like this to work? Or, you know, in cheaper cities, can you open up more of these stores and it actually works in a lot of different places? Um I know that Peter Thal Larson of Reuters was on Twitter saying, like, yeah, he lives in a London suburb with single families owning almost, and and he has 20-minute delivery services cropping up where he is. And so I I, I do, it's a genuine question. Like, is this something that could potentially take over all of America and much of the world? (laughs) It already has, I think, in in places like Hong Kong and, and Beijing. Or is this something which really is always just going to be a big city phenomenon? I think there's a bigger change that happened and was accelerated in the pandemic, which is that people are now comfortable buying groceries online far more than they were before. Um, And then as far as will 15-minute grocery delivery proliferate, I mean, I think Felix you're onto something, I think, only in places that are dense enough to be able to support it. 
And in those places, it's not like, I understand the the argument that you have to worry about the fabric of the neighborhood and the community because of dark stores popping up. Um, but I feel like sometimes those kinds of worries get a little overblown, like cities and neighborhoods change all the time. And right now, um, commercial real estate in cities specifically is undergoing big changes. And I feel like those changes haven't fully been sorted out yet in terms of offices still being empty, retail shops going out of business. Like there is going to have to be some kind of change to a lot of the commercial spaces in cities. So this is going to be a part of that. Yeah. And I will say that in terms of the classic Jane Jacobs eyes on the street thing, like the reason why you want people to live above storefronts is because you have people coming in and out of those storefronts all the time. And so you can see what's going on on the street and it doesn't become this like deserted. Yeah. Nobody wants to live in an industrial zone or. But, but the fact is, I, I can tell you as someone who works above one of these dark stores, like they're called dark stores, but they're not dark they're very very bustling hives of activity there are people going in and out of them all the time there are uh, delivery people like hanging out outside on the street human beings with lots of eyes on that street you actually have more eyes on the street than you would with you know say a high-end fashion store where they get like eight customers a day or something so you know there is humanity there you know just because the people buying the groceries aren't the people going in and out of the store doesn't mean there aren't a lot of people going in and out of the store and that's actually a very efficient use of commercial space and uh, oh and one other thing emily i will add to your thing about the pandemic making people buy groceries online for the first time one of the most interesting um statistics i saw was a piece by my colleague Erica Pandy about this, where she said that online grocery shopping went up by 80% in 2020, and we all know why that happened. But then, this is the thing which really surprised me, it went up again by another 20% in 2021. I, for one, anticipated that, you know, the, the 2020 spike would there would be a mean reversion once everyone was vaccinated and was, you know, able to go back to shopping again without worried about worrying about COVID doesn't seem to have happened that way. Like people having tasted the convenience, uh, doing it even more now this year than they were last year. I was at a a suburban party recently and I was talking about grocery shopping because I like to talk about grocery shopping because I enjoy it. And um, there were like multiple mothers there that were like, I haven't stepped foot in a supermarket since before the pandemic. I love online shopping. It's so much better. Like I'm done. I'm done with it. I'm never going back. And I was, I was actually pretty surprised. People like it. I don't understand why. There's no room to impulse buy. I don't, I don't know. Maybe the 15 minute shopping gives you the chance to impulse buy in a way that the online delivery, you know, the curbside pickup doesn't. I do want to keep on talking about the urban fabric because a big piece of news happened this week. The New York City Council, by an overwhelming majority, passed a bill allowing non-citizens to vote in local elections. And there have been a few very small cities in the U.S. where this has been allowed But New York is orders of magnitude bigger than any of them. This is a major, major change. Um, It is quite common in many other countries. Like um, even even 
national federal elections, you can have non-citizens voting in places like Chile and New Zealand, even Ireland. But in the United States, there has been a lot of pushback against the idea. And the fact that New York City, the city of 8 million people, has now embraced it is a big deal because there's 800,000 new voters, something like that, are now going to start voting in mayoral elections and local elections. Well, I think getting anybody to vote, whether they can or not, is a different question (laughs) from being, being allowed to vote. But as a person who has for most of my life at this point, lived in places, paid taxes in places, and was singularly shut out of both the electoral process as well as any of the benefit system, I cheer this development because, again, what it does is it strengthens the connection real or perceived of people to a place, right? Like when I lived in New York for 10 years the first time and would go to boards, you know, like I'm, I'm one of those people who's like bike lanes. And so I would go to these meetings <laughs> and, and, you know, say my piece or pay attention to things knowing that I couldn't vote, right? Like I didn't, I didn't have any ability to, exer- to exercise any action that would influence that process beyond sort of notional statement making or petitioning or whatever. Um, and this, this is a thing that's going to affect about the, I've seen different numbers, but fewer than a million people, there are about 3 million immigrants, um, in 3 million documented immigrants in New York, people who are either green card holders or on some sort of work visa. And I do think that there are going to be people who, if the message gets to them and they are not, you know, terrorized by people who are like, no, they'll throw you in jail, um, that this could have some potentially interesting effects because you have this new constituent group who has things to say. One of the things that is just simply true, it's not a controversial fact at all, it is is 100% true, is that politicians represent their areas. If you are a senator, you represent everyone in your state. If you're a member of Congress, you represent everyone in your district. And everyone means everyone. It doesn't just mean the US citizens, it means everyone. And there is this very problematic disconnect when you have disenfranchised a very large proportion, and and certainly in many New York congressional districts, a very large proportion of your constituents aren't even allowed to vote for you. It really skews the the, the electoral incentives and how you campaign. And, And it also makes you less likely to really care about the people who aren't even allowed to vote for you anyway. And so this is, you know, I, I, kind of go back and forth on on whether you should be able to um vote for your member of congress or your senator or even your president as a non-citizen but the um way that new york city counts new york city is doing it for local elections makes all the sense in the world to me yeah i i agree just it's so it's just for it's just for local elections then people can just vote you can vote for mayor exactly. and, and like city council and things like that. And I think Manhattan DA as well, which, you know, is in the news this week. <laughs> um, but local, look, local elections matter. And I think that this is about to be a spiel. I apologize in advance. I think one of the things that's been super interesting in the past couple of years is the recognition, mostly by a particular vein of, of politicians and political actors, just how much 
local elections matter and how effectively you can start to set or influence policies that become statewide and then that become national if you can exert the appropriate level of influence um, or control on, you know, local, what's happening in that local context. This might be, I defer to you guys on all matters of citizenship and immigration, but is it too hard to become a citizen? So you have to do things like this? Like, is there some oh, whoa, yeah. thing to think about here? <laughs> well, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, like, talk, yeah. Stacy and I will happily talk to you for about eight hours <laughs> about, like, how ridiculously hard it is to become a and citizen. And the amount of paperwork and the risks. I mean, to, to be clear, what's really hard is getting the green card. Once you have a green card, becoming a citizen is just a, mostly just a question of, like, hanging out for five years. But getting a green card is just ridiculously insanely stupidly difficult for absolutely no good reason at all and that's not handled locally like new york city no. is doing this that's all done at the can. federal Correct. level can't. Yeah. yeah so yeah so new york city does what it can so we have this thing called the nyc id which is an id that anyone can have and you know we're, we're making sure that obviously non-citizens can have driver's licenses and all of this kind of stuff. But when it comes to immigration questions, that's all done at the federal level and localities have no control over that. You would think given the labor crunch that's going on right now <laughs> around the country, there would be there would be more movement to make um, acquiring green cards and make people make it easier for people to become citizens because we we literally need bodies to work in this country. Like it would be to everyone's benefit except maybe workers who would who are in a good spot right now you would think yeah you would think there would be more of a movement like a demand for immigrants honestly at this point let's have a numbers round i'm gonna start i think because i am gonna say 12.1 million which is the number of shipping containers that left u.s ports empty so far this year and there is there are moves afoot in congress actually to change this um but there is this really bizarre part of the whole supply chain disruption thing is this really bizarre situation where american exporters are finding it very hard to export their goods to places like china which you would think would be the easiest thing in the world because there's so much there are so many containers coming in from China with lots of Chinese exports, and then the d demand from China for U.S. imports is much lower. So those those containers are just like empty. You just fill them up with stuff. And and but the fact is that the demand, the the asymmetry is so great, and the ports are so um, overwhelmed that it is easier and cheaper for them to just once the containers get unloaded to just like send them back empty than it is to go through the hassle of filling them up with us exports and then sending them back because the amount of money they get for shipping charges for Americans sending stuff to China is so low. It's not even worth it for them. So, so it's actually, even though there's a huge amount of capacity, theoretical capacity in terms of, um, ships going from california to china in reality 
there's a much, much lower um, amount of those exports than you would think. And the number of empty containers is up like 46% from where it was last year. That is a wild stat. Stacey, do you have a number? I do. It's 630. And that is the number of North American movie theaters that remain closed um, getting into the third year of the pandemic. And it's a number that represents, according to the Bloomberg story that I'm looking at, about 12% of the entire nationwide number of theaters that were operating before the pandemic. I don't really want to go back to the movies. I know a lot of people have, but I don't really want to sit in a movie theater for two hours with a mask on, honestly. I went, I I went to guys. see The Women at Metrograph that reopened in downtown New York, and it was glorious, <laughs> I can tell you. Like, it's, <laughs> it can be great. And we just, actually, I mean, there, there might be 630 closures, Stacey, but there are openings as well. We have a brand new multiplex just opened in Chase Manhattan Plaza, the new Alamo Draft House. Oh, Manhattan. yeah, after they filed for bankruptcy for two minutes and then, <laughs> yep. and then, and then came back. Emily, I... The one thing I will say that I really miss about Trinidad is the way that we experience going to movies because it's a very social and participatory event. Like I remember a lot of, you know, like blockbusters like Lord of the Rings where people would be there and they would be hype and there would be like exclamations and yelling at the screen. And it it was like a, it was almost like a sporting event (laughs) where crowd participation was an expectation. Interestingly, this was not true of all cinemas, right? The the fancy ones <laughs> I did not did not tolerate <laughs> that level of enthusiasm. The, fa- the fancy ones were like, "This is an exactly, opera. Shush, exactly. Be quiet. And, the, and then the dramatic ones were like, <laughs> "But no, this is this is super interesting." One one of my backup numbers this week, I couldn't get like really put my finger on exactly how much people were paying for opening night Spider-Man tickets, but opening Spider opening night Spider-Man tickets have been trading hands for definitely hundreds of dollars and that's exactly the reason why there's no difference between watching spider-man on opening night versus a week later in terms of the movie but people really want that like opening night slash opening weekend feeling of communal the communal feeling if we're all seeing this the first time together and shouting at the screen and that kind of stuff no it's it's yeah i do miss i miss all of that Mm -hmm. that is true but i guess i I'm more pessimist. Like, I guess I have the impression that that's not what's happening in movie theaters right now in the U.S. If I went to a show. No, you just get rows and rows to yourself. It's probably not. (laughs) kind of lonely. It's it's probably not happening in Westchester. (laughs) Okay. The opera vibe. (laughs) Well, my favorite movie theater shut down. So So you're one of the 630. (laughs) Yeah. What's your number? (sighs) Emily, what's your number? My number is 6.9%. That is um, the amount that Cream Tree's production fell in October from a year ago. Yes. The Schmear shortage. We are in the midst of a Cream Cheese shortage. Cream cheese crisis. It is a crisis. Schmear today, gone tomorrow, is the lead of the New York Post piece (laughs) on this. Um, A lot of bad things really happening all at once. Um, The latest crisis, there are a few stories you should read about the Cream Cheese shortage if you're interested, if this is important to you, and it should be. Um, <laughs> Junior's, the cheesecake, the famous. famous cheesecake bakery, had to shut down production. There was a hack 
um, at a Midwest cream cheese um, production company that caused them to shut down production. And that's on top of all the expected supply chain issues. So bagel shops. Wait, was, it, was there like a ransomware thing going on there? Like, have we ransomed? Uh, Has have ransomware like become Ukrainian hackers ha- hack hacked into the cream yes, cheese supply I will, chain? I will in- <clears throat> include the piece, and we can include it in the show notes. But there was a hack. I'm not sure if they were from Ukraine or not, Felix. To your question, but <laughs> <clears throat> making matters worse for the cream cheese crisis. Um, oh my so- god, cream cheese cybercrime. <laughs> And apparently December is like the hot cream cheese. Well, that sounds gross, hot oh. cream cheese. But December is a really big month for cream cheese because of all the holiday baking that goes on, cheesecakes and whatnot, you know, in addition to oh, yeah. the fact that like pe- cream cheese are- icing on the cakes. Yeah. Yes. It's wow. a big deal. I have a recipe on deck downstairs right now where I'm, I'm supposed to be making these sprinkle cookies that have cream cheese in them. Anyway, just something to be aware of. It's it's a it's a good piece of situational awareness that um, Emily. <laughs> Be that, smart. That, thank you for Be that. Smart. Be smart, people. Be smart. Um, get your cream cheese. Get get your cream cheese. Get your cream cheese where where you can. Um, and yeah, and thanks for listening, and thanks for tuning in on Monday because that's going to be the grand succession Ooh. finale. We're going to be talking about whether Kendall is alive or dead and all manner of questions about how succession ends with the one and only Lizzie O'Leary. That's happening on Monday as soon as we can get that thing in the can. And then we'll be back next week for another Slate Money. Money.